Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you're well. Good morning. Nice to see you all. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Luke. I'm married to the wonderful Laura. Uh, next month, we've been married for 11 years. Oh, I know, yeah. <laughs> Miracle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Too right. Um, we've got two children, Iris and April, um, who are wonderful, but at times they certainly keep us on our toes. And I'm a, a secondary school teacher down in Burgess Hill. So I see firsthand the impact that our postmodern, post-Christian, secular Western world is having on both the students that I teach as well as the adults I work alongside. So this morning, I want to use our passage from Romans 7 to talk about spiritual formation. And I'll talk a bit more about that kind of later on. But one of the aims of this series is about how we can apply the gospel to our lives. And I think that spiritual formation and applying the gospel to our lives go hand in hand. And we're going to explore that as we go through the morning. So let's begin by reading Romans 7 verses 14 to 25 together. And bear with me because this is a a fun passage to read. So Paul writes this, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work, Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another work at law with, another law at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Gosh. God, I've practiced that so many times. It's crazy. So there are different ways we can interpret scripture as well as how we can interpret different passages. And given the complex nature of this passage from Romans, it's important that we understand it theologically. And in order to grasp the book of Romans properly and to appreciate it, we need to understand that Paul is setting out his whole theological understanding. In his wonderful biography of Paul, N.T. Wright writes that actually, or suggests more like, that given the size of the city of Rome and given how diverse its religions were, there were probably actually many different house churches in Rome. So what Paul is doing through the letter to the Romans is he is trying to unify them doctrinally by moving through the Hebrew Bible and picking out different points and how they point towards the person of Jesus. And Romans 7 is a pivot point in this letter. This is where Paul is allegorically contrasting what life is like 
under Mosaic law without God's grace and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And you know, when you read about Paul's life, you know, he was beaten, he was stoned, the church at Corinth rejected him, he was thrown in prison numerous times. And Paul, uh, sorry, and N.T. Wright even suggests that Paul was probably thrown in prison again after the so-called prison letters. So Paul is well aware of how impossible living this life could be without God's grace and his Holy Spirit. But one of the beautiful things about scripture is its ability to speak to us at different points and at different times in our lives. And you know, and irrespective of the different kind of theological interpretations of Romans and different passages within it, I cannot help but see myself in this passage when I read it. You know, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. What a wretched man I am. One of the benefits of modern psychology is that it has provided us with language to produce frameworks to help us understand what is going on inside of ourselves. And Alison Cook and Kimberly Miller in their book, Boundaries for Your Soul, suggest this following framework. Um, So in the middle, we have the spirit-led self. And this is referring to the idea that we are made in the image, well, the fact actually, that we are made in the image of God. And as Paul writes in verse 22, that in his inner being, he delights in God's law. And it's also referring to, to the fact that Paul writes uh, in 2 Corinthians about, you know, the old has gone, the new has come, I am a new creation. So that is what the centre, the spirit-led self is referring to. Around the outside, we can see two types of protect- protectors, managers and firefighters. And at the bottom, we have the exiles, the vulnerable parts of the soul. Often, these exiles are caused by trauma, and we can understand trauma as an emotional wound. And um, where am I? I'm here. Uh, And that can lead to to feelings, you can't quite see it because the drum cage in the way, but it can lead to feelings like shame, insecurity and loneliness. Now our managers often keep these feelings in check throughout the day, all right? So with activities like worrying or people pleasing or striving, but sometimes our exiles can be re-wounded, they can be reopened and so our firefighters are needed. Now I have a Um, a father wound as a result of an unstable childhood. So when my exiles, those vulnerable parts of my soul are re-wounded, then I begin to overeat sugary treats to soothe that emotional pain. Now I know that by doing that, I am not being true to my spirit-led self. I'm giving myself over to the disordered desires of the flesh. But that is why a few years ago, I began seeing a counsellor, a wonderful lady, who has helped bring my exiles out of their past into the present reality of my life in Christ. And this has allowed me to cope better you know, with situations because I've actually been able to treat the cause as opposed to medicating the symptoms. You know, so rather than chastise myself, what a wretched man I am you know, and beat myself up when I go to that treat tin, you know, actually I'm able to come to myself with compassion and seek Jesus's healing touch for those wounded parts of my soul. And, you know, we could unpack this further because being, you know, trauma aware and trauma informed 
is really important. And hopefully at some point in the future, we'll be able to delve into that in a bit more depth. But this morning, I just want to pause here and say, you know, if you have a thought pattern, uh, an addiction, a repetitive sin, you know, that you find yourself doing what you don't want to do, you hate what you do, because you do not do what you want to do. I want to say to you this morning that it is okay to struggle. It is okay to struggle. I struggle. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes about his thorn in the, fe- his thorn in the flesh that he struggled with. It is okay to struggle. But what I also want to say this morning is if you are struggling and you are aware of your struggle, then this morning it's time to take that first step. It won't be easy. It will be hard. You know, being vulnerable and being open is super difficult because of, you know, the different managers and different firefighters that are going on inside of ourselves to try and keep this pain in check. But I can stand here and tell you this morning that it's so worth it. And we're going to make space later to pray, you know, to pray for that. And if you feel like you do need to begin seeing someone professionally, then obviously we can, you know, put you in touch with someone. So Paul ends Romans 7 by writing this, and this is from Eugene Peterson's modern interpretation, the message. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions, where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm being pulled by the influence of sin and doing something totally different. Thank God for Jesus. Amen. 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 That said, often we read these verses and then we read the beginnings of Romans 8. There is no condemnation in Christ. And we think, I'm off the hook. Phew. But that is where we begin to see the impact of our postmodern post-Christian, secular Western society on us. And that's because I think we've all become Veruca Salts. We all want it now. Now, I don't know whether you've seen Charlie Chocolate Factory or read it, but obviously back in the 60s, um, Roald Dahl kind of obviously was you know, a prolific writer and the characters of Charlie Chocolate Factory are an observation on society. But that observation really has come to fruition. We live in an instant society, an instant age. You know, we have super, 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 super fast broadband to, to, to supplement, to, to, make, to make our streaming work. You know, if Disney Plus doesn't load instantly, April literally shouts at the TV. <laughs> I'm not I'm joking. You know, we have not next day delivery. We have same day delivery at some points within the hour with instant updates to your phone about where your package is on the road. We have instant messaging. We can literally see when someone is replying with those little dots. Oh, why have they stopped writing? (laughs) Why are they not replying to me? I've I've sent them a message, you know? Like, and I think, you know, that we could describe sin as a disordered desire for instant gratification. I don't want to deal with my emotional pain now, so I'm just going to smash this packet of biscuits. I don't want 
to get to know someone, to trust someone, to commit to spending the rest of my life with someone, to consummate that commitment in marriage. Instead, I want some instant, I want some instant gratification. So I'm going to chuck on some pornography. And I think that this desire for the instant has been absorbed into our walk with Jesus. We want our breakthrough now. We want our issue dealt with now. We all want it now. But the Jesuit priest, Jerry Hughes, writes in his classic book, God of Surprises, he writes this. Sin is the refusal to let God be God. Repentance is letting God be God in our own lives. Knowing our sinfulness and repenting is a lifelong, continual process. How nice is that? When I read that last year, I was just like, oh, thank you, Jesus. You know, and that is not to say that God cannot and does not break into situations, because he does. The Gospels are all about God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus, bringing healing and restoration wherever he went. The Gospels are also about Jesus spending three years, day in, day out, with 12 guys. And that is because God is also the God of the process. He is interested in who we are becoming. You know, and 12 years ago, I was in a pretty bad place and I ended up going on a short-term mission trip to Thailand. Upon reflection, that was a terrible idea. And I remember one night, my head was racing, my mouth was racing, my heart was racing, and I was just asking God to come and fix me. And I remember hearing this voice, it cut through, it cut through the noise, and it said, one thing at a time one thing at a time. Now, the missionaries I was staying with actually wanted to send me home because, quite frankly, I was horrible to be around. But they could see that I was hurting. They could see that I was struggling. And so they persevered with me. And at the end of my trip, those three months I spent there, um, we sat down and we chatted and they were honest and they prayed for me. And as they prayed, something shifted. And since that day, as I've continued to deepen my walk with Jesus, things have continued to shift. And so this leads us to spiritual formation, what I kind of want to talk a, a bit more about this morning. I actually first heard about this when the school that I work at partnered with the Australian Catholic universities around, and let me read this out to you, because, you know, say what you want about the Catholics, they know how to name things, all right? And it's Pope Benedict the twenty-sixth. He's established a new curial office called the Pontifical Council for the Promotion of the New Evangelization. What a name that is. And a major part of this project was providing opportunities for students to form their walk with Jesus. And at the time, I didn't really get it because, you know, in that kind of, in that kind of circle, they like to throw around big words. I didn't, quite, didn't kind of get it. Um, but... I've learned about it a bit more over the past couple of years. I've not mentioned his name yet, which will probably surprise a, a few of you. And if you're playing Preacher Bingo, you can tick this off your card, all right? But I am a big, big fan of John Mark Homer. I think he's brilliant, all right? Now, Comer is a big fan of a fella called Dallas Willard, and he uses a lot of Willard's thought in his writings. But what I love about Comer and why I think he's so, so brilliant is because of his ability to re-articulate complex things. 
And this is, what, this is how he describes spiritual formation in Live No Lies. He writes this, spiritual formation isn't just a follower of Jesus thing. It's a human thing. We are all being formed every minute of every day. We are all becoming someone, intentional or unintentional, conscious or subconscious, deliberate or haphazard. We are all in the process of becoming a person. The question for us as followers of Jesus is, how do we become more like Jesus? So spiritual formation is in short, becoming more like the person of Jesus. And actually it's comprised of many different things and we're gonna kind of explore that together now. But one of those things is something called effort. Now I know in our charismatic context that can set alarm bells ringing, all right? Because we associate it with works and having to earn our salvation, but that isn't really quite right. You know, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, but is the gift of God. You know, and Dallas Willard kind of puts it like this in The Great Omission. He writes, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. So let me break this down in kind of a real world example for you. Back in the summer of 2020, much to Laura's dismay, I bought a road bike. And the plan was for me and a friend and another friend we used to teach at the same school together was to go on a cycling holiday. Now, that hasn't happened. But again, much to Laura's dismay, I've got quite into my road cycling and have all the kind of paraphernalia. I think a lot brilliant, but um, which one's me? Uh, you'll find out. Um, however, if I wanted to say, let's say I wanted to go and, for example, maybe ride the Tour de France... Come on, man. Comedy's all about timing. Um, I would have to completely change my life. If I wanted to ride the 21 stages of the tour, covering the 3,414 kilometres, I would need to ride a lot more than the once a week I ride kind of in the winter months and the twice a week I try and ride in the summer months. I'd need to ride a lot further than the kind of 40 or 50 kilometres of riding my friend, single speed Steve, um, on a Saturday morning. <laughs> I, I, would need, I would need to ride like 150 or 200 kilometres further, you know? And similarly, if we want to become like Jesus, that requires effort. See what I'm saying? And another aspect of spiritual formation are the spiritual disciplines, or as Coleman labels them, practices. And they're practices because they require us to do things, and doing things requires... Thank you. Laura's literally reciting this as we go. All right. We could probably like, you know, say every other word together or something. Um, <laughs> now, these practices can be uh, categorised in a variety of different ways, but they orbit around three aspects. Going to church reading your Bible regularly and praying regularly. So just by being here, you've done all three. Well done. Great. However, you know, this is what we expect our children to do, especially our young people. 
You know, so if you are, for example, reading your Bible regularly, great, because it's generally is such a difficult habit to get into and it's such a difficult habit to keep. But if you are just reading it just to tick off your Bible in one year plan to make yourself feel like a good Christian, or you're reading it to appease that angry deity in the sky, so he, you know, puts his lightning bolt back in his quiver, then you've kind of missed the idea. This is what uh, my friend, Geo II, the Carthusian monk who lived about a thousand years ago, <laughs> this is what he said, all right, uh, in the Ladder of the Monks. Reading without meditation is sterile. Meditation without reading is prone to error. Prayer without meditation is lukewarm. Meditation without prayer is barren. Prayer with devotion achieves contemplation. And a few years ago, I actually started listening to the Bible. You know, April had just been born and life was kind of very busy and unpredictable. But I found that as I listened, it just, it worked for me. You know, and as much as I enjoyed beginning my day with Nicky Gumbel and his disarming tone, as much as it worked, it didn't quite work. It didn't quite click. And then I stumbled across 24-7 prayers resource, Lectio 365. And this just fits with me so much better because each, yeah? Yes, yes. So, <laughs> slowly convert people. Each, uh, uh, in the morning, each the morning reflection begins by inviting you into a time of stillness. And then a passage from the Bible is read and it is reflected upon. That same passage is then read and reflected upon again. And then it kind of ends with a very short prayer. There's also an evening reflection. And if you taught year eight, period six, I find that really helpful to do, all right? Because they are one tough crowd. But the morning reflection ends with this prayer. It says, Father, help me to live this day to the full, being true to you in every way. Jesus, help me to give myself away to others, being kind to everyone I meet. Spirit, help me to love the lost, proclaiming Christ in all I do and say, Amen. 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 And this just grounds me at the beginning of every day. You know, it sets my intention for the day ahead. You know, I never get there, all right? But it's a lifelong continual process. But that's my aim at the start of the day to try and do that. So let's break down these categories with some practical things we can do this week because I wouldn't be a proper teacher if I didn't set y'all some homework. So going to church, here we go. Serving, all right? In our society where the self is worshipped, where what you think, what you want to do, what you believe is the most important thing, coming to church on a Sunday morning and putting others before yourself is one of the most spiritually forming things you can do. So if you are not serving regularly, I just want to challenge you this morning. Can you, once a month, once a half term, can you get up on a Sunday morning with the intention to put others before yourself today? Uh, living in community, sharing meals, living simply, creating a rule of life. Now, again, that might set our legalism alarms off. But actually, we all have a rule, of right, a rule of life, whether conscious or subconscious. We all have things we value and we place above other things. That might be, I work really hard, so I deserve to go on good holidays. Or 
I work really hard or I didn't have a lot when I was younger. I work hard now, so I want to have nice things now. But actually creating a rule of life sets an intention and sets an in focus about how you want to live your life, how, want you, how you want to go about the way you do your business. Um, reading plans. Uh, you know, daily reading plans are great. If you have never read the book of Ezekiel, you are missing out because that is one crazy ride. This guy, man, it's crazy. And if you're not doing that, then it's so, there's so many great books in the Bible that we don't really ever really touch upon and partly because they are bonkers. But there's so, much, there's so much fun to be in, all right? Bible study. There are three things we need to know when interpreting the Bible and they are context, context and context, all right? Like, it's good to study a passage, get it out, read. You know, what's going on at the time and the place? What's happening? Um, reading books by the greats, the great Eugene Peterson, all right, in his memoir says he sat himself under the teaching of three greats, St. John Henry Newman, uh, Baron von Hugel, and some other fella whose name I've forgotten. All right, but even he did that, all right? And it's great to read people outside of our time. You know, Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship is incredible. You know, he's writing at a time when, you know, Germany's becoming a pretty horrific place. And it's so important to read that. Podcasting is so good, all right? And Lectio Divinia. If they know what Lectio Divinia is, actually our friend Galgio II, Gio II, whatever you pronounce his name. Nah, being a bit rude there, aren't I? Anyway, however, whoever he is, he's one of the first people to kind of actually write down what Lectio Divinia is. And basically it's slow reading. You read a passage of the Bible, a short passage. You read it again. You read it again, you read it again, and you read it again. And it's amazing how when you read it, different words, different phrases jump out at you as the Holy Spirit brings those words alive, as, he, as his breath draws them. It's amazing. And then praying regularly, uh, you know, listening prayer, which obviously what, as charismatics, we, we try and do a lot. Uh, intercession and, and petition, which is obviously prayed a lot for the Ukraine recently. Silence. Omri Nouwen says that in silence, our scaffolding is removed as we are laid bare before God. Oofed. Um, contemplation, solitude. Omri Nouwen, Omri Nouwen again says that solitude is the furnace of transformation. Oh, his book, uh, Way of the Heart from 1981 is, is incredible. Um, Sabbath, the examen. The examen was put together by St. Ignatius of Loyola. And it's basically where at the end of every day, you spend 10 minutes and just replay your day in your head. But you don't moralise it. You don't critique it. You try and look for where God was in your day. Try and see where he was at. And it's so helpful. And then obviously fasting, which is really important. Now, let's be honest, these things are nothing new. They have been practised by Christians for hundreds, if not thousands of years. But the problem is they either get forgotten about or they get forced out by the pressures of society. I've heard some people describe, you know, the society we live in as the attention economy as we are constantly bombarded by products and services seeking, seeking to gain our attention and our money. And so these things are really helpful. If you want to learn more about them, then please go and read um, the sections on Sabbath and simplicity in The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. And the section on fasting and live no lies is incredible. So I'd recommend it. Um, 
And I think really the kind of where I'm getting to, the kind of thesis of kind of what I'm saying is that I think antidote, uh, I think practices are an antidote for the postmodern, post-Christian, secular Western society we live in. And Arthur Bors in his wonderful book, Living Into Focus, contrasts the benefits of practices and the pressures that wider society uh, exerts on us. And he writes this, a bit of a long passage, so bear with me, but he's not as complicated as Paul. Those who practice spiritual disciplines, practices, over time know that commitment to prayer is a fundamental stance that profoundly changes the spirit of our age. It calls us to pay attention to the realities that are slowly revealed rather than easily drawn and captivated by hyperactive images on both TV and the web. It makes us wait for meaning to emerge and unfold rather than settle for sound bites. It helps us dwell in mystery rather than chase instant solutions. It encourages us to engage in practices that show no immediate benefit rather than dash to task to task. It invites single-minded attention to the things of God rather than distracted multitasking. It requires staying still and doing similar practices over and over again, even when they seem repetitious, rather than questioning unrelentingly for the new and dismissively writing off the familiar as being there and done that. Being people of prayer and contemplation, worship and compassion means that we submit ourselves and make room for unprogrammed and unprogrammable events. And one practice I just want to kind of unpack a bit further is contemplation or contemplative prayer. Now, contemplation isn't mindfulness where we try and observe our thoughts and contemplation isn't trying to achieve a Zen-like state. Actually, the Greek word for contemplation is theoria. Now, that sounds like something preachers often get on a Sunday morning. Oh, he's got a real case of theory, NT, eh? Really going on this morning. But actually, the Greek word for God is theos. And so theoria, God is at the beginning of contemplation. And ironically, contemplation is a practice where our words begin to fail us because it moves prayer from being transactional to immersive. It requires both our attention and our intention. It requires us to both be and be drawn through the Holy Spirit into the mystery of God and what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. You know, and we kind of see this in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul's kind of giving a mini biography, talks about what he's been through, all the shipwrecks, etc. talks a bit about his thorn in the flesh and talks about this fellow who's been, you know, been to paradise and seen these things. And he, the chapter kind of ends with um, God speaking to Paul and he says this, and this is from the message. My grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. And this is Paul speaking. Once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. It was a case of Christ's strengths moving in on my weakness. And the thing is, contemplation is not an individualistic pursuit. Contemplation is about creating space in our inner life to be able to see God in our life 
around us. And Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk, explores this in New Seeds of Contemplation. And he says that spiritual formation cannot take place in isolation. It must take place within community and relationship. You know, and the great mystics of the, of the faith, the great contemplatives who have at times been maligned by some, trans, some traditions of, the, of Protestantism, um, knew this. The things they experienced and the things they encountered through contemplation, they then wrote and told the rest of their community about. You know, if you ever read Teresa of Avila at the Interior Castle, she's constantly writing to her sisters, her fellow nun, her fellow Carmelite nuns. You know, and early this morning, kind of we read from Romans 7, where Paul is contemplating what life is like without Jesus. And I think we can all identify with those feelings of not doing what we want to do and hating what we do. However, the truth is this morning that because of what Jesus has done, you are a new creation. And the truth is as well, by practising contemplation, you can be transformed by the renewal of your mind, as Paul writes later in Romans 12, from the patterns of this world. Through practising contemplation. And in John 5, Jesus says this, I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. Jesus is offering us eternal life right here, right now. Not some platonistic idea of escaping this world for some place about troubles or trials. Eternal life right here, right now. And therefore, I think making the effort every day to spend five or so minutes in contemplation, in the stillness and the silence of it, and trust me, that time will fly by, allows you to be drawn away from the pull of your disordered desires from instant gratification, as well as the patterns of our postmodern, post-Christian, secular Western society. But I also think contemplation allows you to be drawn to and towards, by the Holy Spirit, this lifelong, grace-filled journey of becoming like Jesus and doing what Jesus did. And one of the wonderful things about contemplation is that when you get distracted by those squirrel thoughts, as we all do, it provides an opportunity to come back and recognise God's grace towards you. And every time you get distracted, you can come back to God's grace. Continually coming back to recognise what Jesus did for you on that cross. And so I want to finish by posing some questions to you because I think it would be really good to make space to pray. So do you need healing for an emotional wound this morning? Do you need to take that first step towards receiving some professional help for your traumas you've experienced? Do you need the Holy Spirit to break the power of a disordered desire? Do you need to embrace the process that you are currently going through? And do you need to receive God's, fresh, God's grace afresh this morning?